for my tardiness this morning. I do have handouts if you want to grab one and uh, pass them around. And uh, right before we begin the lesson, uh, are there any other uh, prayer requests that we could uh, know about so that this week we can be praying for and with each other? Yes, Janice? Okay. Rachel? Right. And you said she doesn't know the Lord? Okay. All right. And that's, that's a real sad reality for those that uh, don't know the Lord. Just to remind you, uh, Cindy and I never knew how common miscarriages were uh, when we had ours. And it was, it, it was gut-wrenching. You know, when you recognize that that is life, you know. So... Uh, um, let me remind you of a resource. Uh, MacArthur's book, Safe in the Arms of God, it's not just because MacArthur wrote it. That's not why I endorse it. Uh, but uh, um, I remember him uh, working through, where do the little ones go? And, uh, you know, and when, when John called me after the shooting here in Sandy Hook, you know, he's, I, I, I was asking him, I said, you're on CNN all the time, and in front of media, I said, how can Joey and I not drop the ball? And he said, you better be ready. Be, be ready to let people know, because uh, you, you better have a word for them. And uh, that's why I want you to be aware of that resource. Safe in the Arms of God is an is a unavailable resource that deals with the issue of how we, how we, we have certainty of hope that they're in the Lord's presence. Don't try to figure it all out. There's a lot of theology we're not going to figure out, right? You know, uh, human responsibility, divine sovereignty, and where they all connect and whatnot. We know that the Bible teaches both. Let's leave it there. Let's rest in that. In the same time, don't try to wrestle through, okay, if, if we're all born totally depraved as we were, we've been studying in Sunday school, how does God usher, usher sinners in His presence? You know, and and he, he works through some of those questions and whatnot, and so uh, that's, a, that's a great resource for believers to, to be assured that uh, the little ones are with Jesus. And, uh, are there anything else we can be praying for, Kath? All right, we'll take them too. Evie, you said? That's my new niece's name. All right. Well, great. Let's, so let's rejoice together in our uh, praises, and uh, we'll uh, um, pray together as well uh, this, this week with uh, the various requests. Take your Bibles, if you will. And uh, turn over to Psalm 32. I thought that it would uh, behoove us, before we move on, uh, we've been studying the doctrine of man and, and, uh, and sin, kind of combining those two doctrines, because you can't talk about one without the other. Uh, 
it is important for believers. Uh, you know, as I was training some uh, some uh, biblical counselors on Thursday, I was reminding them again, as as I want to remind us frequently, you, know, you can you cannot be a good biblical counselor or discipler, whichever word you want to use for that, because I kind of meld them together, uh, without a proper view of man as the Bible reveals man. We've looked at the account of the fall in Genesis 3. We are products of the fall. We live in a, in a post-Genesis 3 world, a fallen world. We've tried to connect some of the dots in regards to our condition of total depravity and our deadness before Jesus uh, interjected in our, in, in our lives and initiated a relationship with us. And uh, though we've bat the ball all the way back and forth on, on fallenness and, and depravity, we never have gotten around to defining what, what is what is sin. There's so many misconceptions out there. Uh, I, I thought that it would not be good of me to move on without spending one more lesson. And, and, and with the risk of you thinking that I am delaying this teaching on sin too much without the reality of sin, there is no gloriousness of the gospel to recognize what God saved us from. The gospel is all about sin. Uh, so we need to have one more look related to the fall and total depravity as sin is so innate to our humanness. Speaking about our great need without talking about sin, there is no salvation. The, the need is, is so great as you see how great the need of sin is, so great is the provision of Christ. Like that person that I heard about who uh, confessed that uh, I am a great sinner, but He is a great Savior. He indeed is our all in all. And the more thorough our understanding of sin is, even as believers the more thorough our confessions can be and our mourning over sin. We looked at uh, mourning over sin last uh, Sunday night in the second beatitude, mourning over and repenting. And that's where we find the psalmist in Psalm 32. Psalm 32, what a, what a great psalm of David who instructs us on forgiveness and he instructs us on the theology of sin. In, in fact, uh, he kind of pictures, since he uses three different words for sin to show how convoluted sin is in parallel fashion to the threefold sin, he talks about this threefold confession and forgiveness so that we see in parallel how great our sin is and how great the forgiveness in Christ is. Notice what he records for us in Psalm 32. How blessed. You want to, you want to have a blessed life? How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered? How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit? 
When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. Ponder. Reflect upon what he had just said. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. I said I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah, ponder, reflect upon that. Verse 6, therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. The way of a transgressor, we read elsewhere, is hard. But he who trusts in the Lord... Loving kindness will surround him. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Though we will not exposit this passage, it's on, on the website. You could listen along this week if you want to uh, go into a, a, a deeper study on Psalm 32. But I thought it would uh, be a good text for us to springboard off as we focus not on us being victims of our sin, but an active participant. To, to realize that sin is not something that's passive. It is something that is active. Man is in rebellion against God, and in spite of his aggressive transgression to break God's law, God has provided a gracious provision. Romans 5.8, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get all washed up with that bar of ivory soap and get all good and clean and likable. So, let's look at the, uh, the main terminology for sin. And these are the three terms used here in Psalm 32. That first is uh, the Hebrew word hata, sin, missing the mark, erring. It is equivalent to the Greek word harmartia. It is a failure from the normal aim or purpose in life. God has created man upright, but He has chosen many devices. It is a deviation from what is pleasing to Him. It is sin. It is missing the mark. God created us to glorify Him, but we broke His law. That is the term sin. There is a second term, which is iniquity. I own in the Hebrew. It is a crookedness, a perversity. It's a perverse turning aside from the proper course. Uh, so this nuance is, it, it, it's a distortion. In our fallenness, we are warped with no part of our being unaffected. Warped in our thinking, warped in our loving and our desires and our longing. Warped in what we do. You know, it has the idea of 
twisted or being out of shape. You know that I've done, uh, I've done years of uh, remod- the remodeling gig to help pay, pay bills. There have been times, that, you know, when you are doing remodeling, if you have to take something off, you, ha- you want to do minimal damage to what you take off because you're going to put it back on. And if you cannot salvage it, you're going to have to pay money as a contractor to replace it. And so there have been times that I've taken something that is aluminum or tin and it was so mangled I couldn't reuse it. So mangled is the picture here of iniquity. Mangled and twisted, unusable. All of our being, our intellect, our emotions, our will, our desires. So rather than assume that, uh, you know, I'm speaking primarily to believers here in adult Sunday school this, this morning. Let me encourage you, rather than automatically assume that you are right, how about your default condition, uh, your, the, your default setting thinking that you must be wrong? Because that's the picture. In our, in our fall, if, if we get a grip on our fallenness, we're not going to be so apt to assume that we're right. There's not going to be excuses. There's not going to be the blame shifting. There's not going to be the minimizing. There's going to be the owning up to the gravity of our sin. There's a third word used in the Scriptures and used here in Psalm 32. There's sin, there's iniquity, there's transgression. That word is simply rebellion or trespass, pasha. It is a, it is a violation of God's law. God said it. We broke it. It is a breaking loose or a tearing away from God. It is willful deviation. So that is why I tell you sin is no passive issue. It is active. We are engaged and involved. It is crossing the line. God said you shall not step here, and we tiptoe over it. Or going back to the fall in Genesis 3, don't eat it. They ate it. That's transgression. There's so many other words we could uh, use, so much more terminology in Scripture to flesh out wickedness, evil, unrighteousness, ungodly, lawless, turn aside, deceit, guilty, disobedient, or any other word that the Scriptures use of acts that are wrong, acts that are sinful, or things that are forbidden. And it fleshes that out beautifully. So, mark it down, beloved, we sin. It is innate in everything. Even our best deeds are tainted by our our service to Christ. Sometimes you've got even that hidden motive or something that's just off slightly. So, let's confess it as that. Thorough confession So we step up in the judgment chamber with the judge and accuse ourselves for our sin. Why? That he might cover it. As God points to it, as his spirit convicts us of it, so we too confess it. And we uh, confess it that he might cover it, that he might forgive, that he might not impute it. And those are the three three parallel truths of forgiveness that the psalmist gives us. Forgive, forgive, cover, not impute. 
we read in Proverbs 28 that he who covers his sin shall not what? Shall not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them, what does he get? Mercy. That's what we want. And so we don't hide and cover up. That's Satan's way of dealing with sin. Let's cover it up. Let's pretend it doesn't exist. Let's minimize it. Let's blame shift. But as believers, let's, let's go ahead and confess it that he might cover it. So m- many terms used in Scripture for this, uh, this sin. Let me try to pack down in a, in a compre- uh, comprehensive uh, definition. It is falling short of the mark. Why'd God create you? That's not a rhetorical question. Huh? To glorify Him. To glorify Him. You know, as, as people work on, uh, they, they give us worldly views of, uh, uh, of sin. They falsely define sin as an illusion. Sin's an illusion. Or it's finiteness. Or sensuousness. You know, the Christian scientist would be here. No big deal. To err is human, they say. Sensuousness. Sin's normal. If I could quote the lesser-known theologian, rock musician, Marilyn Manson. Quote, I was drawn into the darker side of life but it's really just human nature. I started to learn that everything that's considered a sin is what makes you hum- a human being. All the seven deadly sins are man's true nature. To be greedy, to be hateful, to have lust. Of course, you have to control them. But if you're made to feel guilty for being human, then you're going to be trapped in a never-ending, uh, never-ending sin and repent cycle that you can't escape from, and you're going to be miserable. Ultimately, you'll be living in your own hell, so there's no need to worry about going to hell because hell will be on earth, unquote. So let's, let's do away with a biblical definition of, of sin so that we can soothe our conscience because we don't want to get trapped in that uh, never-ending cycle of confession of sin and repentance and forsaking and uh, having to ask God for forgiveness and all that other stuff, because then that'll be bad for your self-esteem. So it's falsely defined by many. It is also incompletely defined as an absence of goodness. Did I put that up? Yeah, absence of goodness. Unbelief. Lawlessness, selfishness. And those, though those are elements in it, they're incomplete. To quote C.S. Lewis, if I can read my own writing here, uh, well, we're just not imperfect creatures. We're, uh, oh, here's what he says. He's, he says to suggest that we're just imperfect creatures who just need a little improvement. That's not a recognition of total depravity. We need to recognize that we are a rebel who must lay down our arms. Not... Sorry to butcher Lewis's quote. 
It's a hitting the mark. Not only is sin a missing God mark, but it's, it's hitting the biblical mark, the biblical revelation of it being a disposition of our heart. We are, by nature, sin lovers. There was a, there's a, the Howard Newspaper Organization has a logo, a lighthouse beneath which are the words, here's, here's their motto, give the people the light and they will find their way. Good motto for a newspaper, give them the light, they'll find the way. The idea is that people will make foolish mistakes and bad decisions because they don't know the right way. There's an ignorance to it. But as the Bible describes our condition without Christ, Jesus was the light of the world, says John, right? He was the world's light. The light was shining. But the people of his day didn't respond to Jesus by walking in the right path. They, they rejected the light. Lest that light show all the bugs and the scum of life. They hated the light. They tried to dis, uh, extinguish the light. They crucified the lighthouse. John was there. He saw what happened, and he had this damning observation. Quote, John 3, 19, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. That is the disposition of the human heart. Deeds are evil. Sin, to, to try to define sin more comprehensively, we not only recognize it's the disposition of man's heart, even the thoughts goes down into our hearts. The impulse, the intent, it is the act and even the omission. I gave you a couple of verses there. James appeals to this. He says, Therefore, him that knows to do good, and what? Doesn't do it. To him, it's sin. So, sins of Ill- so, so we are not only guilty of acts of treason against the King of Heaven that we know are wrong, but what we don't do that we know we're supposed to do. There is a view in pragmatic ministry that if, if you give people what they want, they'll, they'll come, they'll flock to the church. We want to reach the unchurched. If all the churches in the world be, became amalgamated, it, it wouldn't make the slightest difference. People think, well, well, the unbelievers aren't coming to the churches because there's so much fighting and feuding. There's disunity there. Well, I'll admit that disunity does not help, especially when, uh, when uh, TVs and newspapers promote all the feuding and fighting that goes on and what, what places call themselves churches. That does nothing for a testimony. But why is an unbeliever on the outside? Because he likes his sin, because he's a sinner. He's ignorant of spiritual realities. He's no more interested in this problem of unity than the man on the moon, says Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. So let's make sure that as we 
formulate a biblical theology uh, of sin, and we look at the various terminology, and we need to make sure that we are more comprehensive in our definition of how broad and deep sin really is, let's also make sure to concisely define it. Concisely define it. Sin is any personal lack of conformity to the moral character and desire of God. I gave you a couple of definitions from uh, one by John Stott, the cross of Christ. Sin's essence is hostility to God. That's Romans 8, 7. Issuing an active rebellion against Him. Sin is a willful, defiant, or disloyal quality. Someone is defied or offended or hurt. Horn, in his uh, book, Salvation, says, sin as biblically described is not only a failure to obey the law of God and or a violation of it, it is also, and perhaps even more significantly, a deification of self and a dethronement of God. If I'm the Lord of my life, Christ isn't. Paul ends in his uh, shorter theology book, the Moody Handbook of Theology, says sin is a transgression of the law of God, is a failure to conform to the standard of God, is a principle within man, is rebellion against God, is wrongful acts towards God and man, unquote. Millard Erickson, in his systematic theology book, as he tries to help us squash down the definition to concisely define sin, what is sin? He says, a common element running through all of these varied ways of characterizing sin is the idea that the sinner has failed to fulfill God's law. Yet sin is not merely wrong acts and thoughts but sinfulness as well, an inherent inner disposition inclining us to wrong acts and thoughts. We are not simply sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We offer then this definition of sin, that sin is any lack of conformity, active or passive, to the moral law of God. This may be a matter of act, of thought, or of inner disposition or state. So as we are trying to become better mourners over our sin, as we spend some time each day confessing our sins, and you, you run short on your list, you confess this, you confess that, that you're, you're aware of, maybe it would be a good practice for us to get into before we close the confession part of our prayer. Lord, just the disposition of my heart is sinful. Wash it. Regenerate, cleanse, purify, conform to the image of Christ through the new heart you've given me in Christ, through the gospel. As we think about sin and the devastating consequences of it in the fall, let's think about the, the extent and the impact. We've already noticed the totality of depravity uh, the last couple of weeks. But it's every part. It extends to every part. Mind, heart, and will. 
No part has escaped the impact of sin, and thus no man can commend himself to God. There's even what theologians refer to as the noetic effects of the sin, the, uh, the effect that the fall has on our thought process. This is something that even you Christians, us Christians, experience. Uh, I, I like referring to it as the harmatological hangover. The sinful hangover, you know, the, though you've been forgiven of your sins, though you've been cleansed, though you've got a new nature in Christ, there is still that effect. Let me give you one passage to uh, contemplate this week as you, as you think about some of the application of this in our lives. In Ephesians chapter 4, the, the Apostle Paul is unfolding to the church at Ephesus their, the new man, their new nature in Christ, and he exhorts them in the Christian walk. And he appeals to their manner of thinking, being renewed in their thought process. See, sanctification is not just about stopping doing what we aren't supposed to be doing. It is putting on righteous behavior, the put-off, put-on dynamic. So, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, so this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk. You know, he, he says to them, you remember what your pagan life used to look like? What you used to love, now you hate. What you used to hate, now you love. And, and as he says, when you're, when you're remembering what your life was as a Gentile, here is case in point of what life looked like as an unbeliever. Walking in the futility of their mind. The futility of the mind. The emptiness of their thought process. The twistedness, as we had already talked about. Notice verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. So you take somebody who does not know Christ as Savior, they have not turned from their sin, embraced Christ through faith, they love their sin, they, the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God, it's foolishness to him. In, uh, in a, they're excluded from the life of God because of the hardness of their heart. Verse 19, he says they become calloused. They've got a calloused heart. Have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. I, I automatically think of the psalm we looked at last week, uh, how that... Uh, when we were looking at total depravity, that uh, uh, man is scheming and planning on sin in his bed. You know, just thinking about, how, how can I sin? How can I please self? Verse 20, here's the contrast again. Their, their new nature in Christ. But, but you didn't learn Christ in this way. If indeed you've heard Him and have been taught in Him just as truth is in Jesus. He's appealing to the truth factor here. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Your thought process needs to be changing. 
Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in, the right, in righteousness and the holiness of the truth. We could go on, but we won't. So, as we think about how sin extends to every part of man, and we're wanting to confess our sin to the Lord, be thorough in our confessions, there's an avalanche of data that we, we haven't covered. Like 1 Kings 8, 46, no man, there's no man who doesn't sin. Psalm 143, 2, no man living is righteous. Proverbs 20, verse 9, who can say I have cleansed my heart from sin? Great rhetorical question. Nobody. Ecclesiastes 7, 20, there's not a righteous man on earth who doesn't sin. Let Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 fill in some of that. But if you want to take your Bible and turn over to Romans 3, let's look at this passage together showing its effects in our, our whole thinking and living. Let's see it leveled by the judge. In Romans chapter 3, this is one of those passages that just, just unpacks the extremity of sin. Now, in, in the book of Romans, as, as we come to the, the judge's bar, God in His revelation declaring all men everywhere, breakers of His law, sinners by nature, sinners by choice, um, Chapter 1 gives an account against the heathen, and the witness of creation stands against him. Romans chapter 1, Apostle Paul says, you know, as the psalmist says that creation is narrating the glory of God, there's no excuse. All unbelievers, all the heathen can look around them, see creation, know that there's a creator God. So, creation stands witness against the heathen. Chapter 2, against the moralist, stands the witness of conscience. Even those that do not have the law of God, in, in, in Romans 2, Paul is not addressing the Jews, he's addressing the Gentiles, those that didn't have God's law. And even they had the law of God written into their conscience. That when they would do wrong, they would have pangs of conscience that condemns them. Against the religionist stands the written word in chapter 3, which is where I had you turn. People get so content in their religion, thinking that that uh, appeases a a holy God, that that uh, makes them more appealing to him. So the whole world is summoned before the court. Notice the charge in verse 9. All are under sin. Paul, Paul says to the religionists, to the Jews, to those that had the revealed law of God, what then? Are we better than they? Looking at the pagans that didn't have the law of God? Not at all. 
For we've already charged both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Religious or irreligious. Moral or immoral. So the whole earth is charged, all are under sin. What is the evidence to support that charge that all are under sin? Remember in school learning when you're writing a paper, you've got your main points and your subpoints. All these next verses are your subpoints underneath that main point. When he says all are under sin, notice what he says here. Verses 10 through 18. There's none righteous, not even one, none who understands, none who seeks God. They've turned aside, together they've become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. Let's look at their anatomy. Their throat, it's an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet is swift to sweat, uh, shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the paths of peace they haven't known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the evidence. So Paul, citing facts recorded in God's special revelation, supports the charge that all are under sin. From the top of his head to the tip of his toes, he is devoted to sin. How extensive is this sinfulness? Look at the extensive notes of none, all, not, they are known, no fear. These are of absolute statements, explanations to go to the nth degree. And furthermore, he does go through their anatomy, their throat, their tongue, their lips, their mouth, their feet, their eyes, every part of their being is devoted to sin. So, as the epistle to the Romans, bar of guilt, continues, what is the verdict? Guilty. The verdict is guilty. No defense to offer, nothing to offer in mitigation either. Notice verses 19 and 20. We know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth can be closed, all the world may become accountable to God. So it's not a matter of, well, I'm just a poor, helpless victim, victim of circumstances, victim of bad parenting, victim of the world's onslaught. The Bible does not enhance the view of victimhood, but of culpability, of accountability. The verdict is guilty because none understand, none seek God, none do good. Mind, heart, and will, all equally and totally engaged in a pursuit of sin. So we must confess with Scripture that sin drastically affects the will, drastically affects the mind drastically affects the affections and the emotions. You know, you know, some of the pull away, some of the application for me as a believer as we study this together, when, when we are to be devoted to God and loving God and serving God out of hearts of love, we ought to be highly suspect of our own sanctification. When you think that you love God and we're, we're seeking to serve God, beware. 
be on guard that even what we are offering to God might be have some hidden motives behind that we need to ask God to purify and mitigate and change. That even our affections, we don't love God as we ought or as we desire. So the will, the mind, our affections and emotions, our, our speech and behavior, way much more that we could say, but I, I think you get the picture. As we, as we look at man without Christ, to be without God is to be without hope in this world. But to be in Christ, to enter eternal life through repentance and maintain a life of perpetual repentance that we would ask God to reveal our sinfulness, that we might confess it, that He might cover it, that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you pray with me? Father, we do come to You through the blood of Christ, through our Advocate, through the One who took down the barrier, the one who opened the way, the access to God, that when you look at us as redeemed sinners, you look at us through the righteousness of your own beloved one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who lived the perfect life, who kept your law that we could not, and offered you the only sacrifice for sin, even for sinners such as us. Might you find in us hearts that are overflowing with lavish gratitude and service for the lavish love and grace poured out into our lives. We offer you praise and adoration and service and worship for what you accomplished for us that we could not accomplish for ourselves. You thank, we thank you that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We pray this in His matchless name. Amen.